Hello, friends. Welcome to the Resonance Test. I'm your host, Allison Coton, an interaction designer at EPAM Continuum. I've been thinking a lot recently about the difference between the long, slow work of addressing the root causes of problems in our society and the faster, perhaps more obvious work of ameliorating the impacts of those problems in people's lives in the here and now. It seems to me that whatever the problem, systemic racism, food insecurity, income inequality, climate change, or some combination, it can't be framed in this either-or manner. Yes, we have to address root causes, because without that difficult work, any other intervention feels like a mere band-aid. But also, yes, we can't ignore the needs of the individual people whose lives are impacted, even threatened by those big problems we seek to solve. It may even be that this dual approach is our best bet for restoring people's trust in the big systems that will go on shaping their lives for better or for worse. And so it is with climate change. I'll compost, drive my hybrid car, and work on cutting single-use plastics out of my life. But my little drops in the bucket feel a lot more meaningful when I see big corporations stepping up to do better, too, and influencing their ecosystems to follow. As Xavier Uo, Senior Vice President of Sustainable Business and Operations at Schneider Electric, explains to Elena Schechter, EPEM's Chief Marketing and Strategy Officer, everything from customer loyalty to literally preserving human life hangs in the balance when it comes to corporate sustainability. This isn't about well-meaning recycling programs in the office lunchroom. It's looking at entire supply chains to impact components of a company's carbon footprint, from habitat preservation to fair labor practices to green package design, to name a few. Ultimately, it's about looking at the micro and the macro, addressing those root causes of climate change that will have global impact, and also considering how to keep people safe, healthy, even inspired by the work they do as we seek to do better by our planet. Schneider was uh, was just recognized for being um, the world's most sustainable corporation, and we'll we'll um we'll add some some links to to this podcast when we publish it. But um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about having earned that designation, what it means, sort of what it's taken, and how you guys are thinking about it in the context of your global sustainability agenda. Yeah, sure. Thank you. Uh, it's true. Uh, you know, it's an honor for, for having received that recognition earlier this year. Uh, as you know, there are quite a number of uh, comparisons, awards, recognitions out there in the sustainability space. You know, Dow Jones sustainability, various sector comparison, and of course, corporate nights uh, recognitions coming every Jan are also quite uh, followed. Uh, it's 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 humbling, you know. You know, it obliges us to stay where we've been identified to to appear, which is in the top league of those companies dedicated to drive sustainable businesses and operations. At the same time, to be very honest, we really don't fight for those recognitions. Our strategies have been defined because of the ambitions we are pursuing, and if, in addition to that, we get recognized by those ratings, frankly speaking, it's. It's coming as an extra uh, recognition for our teams, but that's this uh, clearly in that direction which we are driving our strategy. And maybe a few l- lessons from that is we keep on comparing ourselves with others, and those measurements, those comparisons, help us see where we are still away from some of the best, where we are considered as one of the best. So it's a good um, way for us to gauge where we are in the eyes of others. Uh, and it pushes us to go much further ahead still. <laughs> I wonder, um, just since we're, we're just kicking off and it's a lovely Friday for, for both of us, I um, wonder if I could ask you kind of a little controversial question. <clears throat> so when I've talked to people in the past, we, we've talked to other companies, maybe not not as, as big or diverse as, as, as Schneider is, but also global and also facing some um, of the similar goals that they've set up for themselves. And when I've asked them, and this is really not on the record, off the record, most, more more than anything. Um, one of the responses that, that I thought was really interesting was that um, the, the sustainability leads would have said something like, you know, we make it a point not to compare ourselves to others, but we compare ourselves to where we were six months ago or a year ago. And that's driving a much more aggressive change agenda than um, than simply um, kind of moving through a series of uh, metrics. And I'm curious, do you guys do that too? Do you compare yourself to what you were doing six months ago or a year ago? Of course. For me, I would even expand your question a bit further. We start with looking at the challenges outside of 
ourselves, which is we look ourselves from an outside-in perspective. We look at sustainable development goals. That's real. That's not a theoretical approach, which I'm saying. That's the way we look at the world. So we look at what would it make to make the world in 2030, 40, 50 to, to be you know, workable with companies like us? How much do we shrink ourselves? How much do we invent low carbon? So that's the first entry is how do we compare ourselves? Are we viable? Are we sustainable in that real sense? Second, we do compare with the best in each category, the best on safety, the best on circularity. Of course, we compare ourselves with six months before, but frankly speaking, for me, it's not very important to, to, to please ourselves saying we are better than we were. Fine. But if we are better, but it's not enough, that frankly doesn't make the world be a better place. So I, I tend to disagree with that. I think it's much more important to look from an outside-in perspective and look at the best only. And then, of course, good to track progress. But if we were pleased by the world's decarbonization base, we decarbonize the, the GDP intensity. You know, of course, we have less fuel in content in the world GDP, less CO2 content, but it's so slow compared to what's at stake. So looking back in the mirror is not going to save us. So same for Schneider. Great. Um, let's talk a little bit about that. So you 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 have this really um, marquee project called the Zero Carbon Project. Um, maybe just as a, you know, so following up on the question and, and your answer just now, tell tell us a little about what that project is and why um, supply chain is such a high priority in that in the context of that program. Of course. So what we name Zero Carbon Project is a project whereby we have decided to engage our 1,000 top suppliers in the next five years to start with to reduce by 50% to half their operational carbon emission. So the ambition is, is both quantitative. We want to, through them, reduce what we call the scope three, the upstream footprint of our supply chain. That's one. But much Beyond that, it's to bring alongside us an ecosystem of like-minded companies to do and replicate what we've been doing to ourselves. So it's really much the, the latter, which for me is the ambition. It's not only to shrink the purchases from them and for that narrow part of their revenues to decarbonize it for our own benefit. It's really to engage many companies. And in, in that journey, uh, the reason why we did that is because there is a significant and material carbon footprint upstream. For us in 2020, last year, we had 4% of our cradle-to-gate footprint, see, from the mine to the doors of our distribution centers, 4% in our operations, and 96% with our suppliers. So, of course, the 96% is their operations, but also the copper, the steel, the aluminium, the electronics, the transportation we buy. So as you can understand, the 96% is our indirect responsibility, but we have been deciding to tackle that full-heartedly with that program, as well as green materials, green packaging, green logistics. Mm. Well, it's quite a diverse and and, uh, and broad undertaking. Uh, I know it's only been a year or so, but where are you seeing success and, and where are you seeing challenges in, in the upstream landscape? Yeah, there, there will be plenty of challenges and I will allude to those in a, in a second. Uh, I would like to start with the the pleasure, the joy, the successes we had in the last six months is fantastic response from the suppliers. We have crossed the more than 1,000 suppliers which have accepted to enroll themselves. As you can imagine, it was not forced to them we were inviting them and we had an overwhelming response. So that's a fantastic success. We had more than 1,500 individual participants in the kickoff with our CEO in April. We had eight seminars, webinars in June and May where we walked them, each of them through four-hour decarbonization session, what's in it for you, what are the methods, what are the best practices, massive attendance. We have now monthly community calls, massive attendance. We share. So I think the number one success is that one. Second, we've learned through a, a quite deep maturity assessment, which we did, we learned where they were. And they all opened up very candidly about where they were in their carbon journey. And what we learned is that 85% had not started. So we could see that as a challenge. It will be a challenge. But of course, it's a fantastic understanding for us to know by sector, by country, 
who are the ones who've started. So 150 of them have started their economic journey. They have a plan. They have an ambition of some sort, not necessarily 50%. But that's another great success to have that openness. And the last positive success is we are building assets for them. We are building a community platform where they will be able to find in a few weeks a lot of resources for them uh, to to avail, to enjoy uh, such feedbacks and value add from Schnatter. The challenges will be many. First, we have sectors which are we call hard to abate. That means it won't be easy for them to get to 50%, and they may have started 20 years ago. If you look at steel uh, or any metal vendor to Schneider, they, they have not waited for Schneider Electric Program to kick off this initiative. So for them, they may not get to 50%, but the target is an average. So maybe some of them would get to 20%, some others to 70%. But for those, it's going to be a challenge to go much further. Uh, for a number of others, it's like they don't have enough a person in charge in their company. So they have to start with level one, assigning responsibilities, understanding energy, understanding carbon. So these are going to be challenges which are addressable over the next four years by trainings for them, but it's going to take their decision to invest into those skills. And maybe the last challenge I see, as we decided not to be forceful, I mean, we will, uh, I'm not saying we're going to do business with any suppliers. Of course, we will want to do business with the best suppliers and the most sustainable suppliers in the future, but there's no some mandate uh, there's no obligation. So it's all going to be our ability to bring alongside those 1,000 suppliers in the next four years in a very positive atmosphere so that they see the benefits for them, their customers, their teams. And that's another challenge I'm confident we're going to be able to, to address, but that's a challenge for us uh, in the next four years. Hmm. In the future, do you think you're going to have kind of a more mandatory stance? We may not be able to mandate what we are doing. We, when we select suppliers and when we assign business, we audit them, we survey them. Today, we have thousands of them surveyed by EcoVadis mm-hmm. uh, CSR uh, framework. We are doing field, environment, health and safety, sustainability audits. That's This one is adding. We are selecting greener materials. So 50% of materials have to be green in four years, low carbon recycled. So what I want to say is the addition of those criteria will certainly push us to buy from those most sustainable buyers. Today, we have not yet defined a formula, yes, no, in, out, to, um, besides, you know, of course, uh, black spot and uh, non-compliant practices, of course, but there's no mathematical algorithm for us to give more business today to most sustainable suppliers, but the, the, the lens has been adding, yes. Yeah, that's it's a really interesting um, sort of way to think about it. So as, as you know, EPAM, we're one of your suppliers, and I would say that we're relatively early in our own uh, sustainability journey here. It's, it's not, we're not in the place where we haven't started. That's certainly not the case, but I would think um, that we're probably a year in earnest a year into the program where we're Mm. talking about carbon reduction and we're talking about putting together and prioritizing uh, a really a a number of sustainability initiatives. And one of the things that, uh, that that I think we really are struggling to understand for ourselves and also communicate uh, in turn is how we build a business case for sustainability, seeing as we're not a steel manufacturer, we're an engineering Mm. services company. Uh, how are you guys helping your suppliers build their business case for sustainability? No, that's an excellent question. Especially for the company in your case, uh, EPAM, leadership and teams not feel sustainability is a bolt-on, must-do CSR corporate thing to be added to the rest. Of course, it's not. So you're right, starting with the business case is super critical. Usually, I, t- I, I and you, we used to see the business case in five dimensions. First one is certainly a, a PNL thing. You know, usually looking at sustainability helps better understand all the resources consumed, travel, packaging, computers, cloud time, waste, food, square meters, and through that lens, uh, believe me or not, we, we go further. We could believe that cost accounting, cost control would be enough, but I can assure you it works. So it's good money saved. We, we saved electricity and energy. We save money. We moved to renewables. It was cheaper. So we are having a P&L component. That's part of the business. Number two is certainly starting with your teams, employers, value props, so your teams 
are loving it, that you are taking leadership on this and they will love it further. So that's certainly engaging your teams more, strengthening their loyalty, their, 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 their love to, to the brand of EPAM. Number three, clearly, it's more business. Uh, I, I don't know your sector well enough, but in the digital space services, I know for a fact that more and more customers are willing to place their money where the sustainable mouth is. And there, there certainly must be ways for you to spell out how much your offers, your services are delivered, made, thought in a more sustainable manner. And the business case follows suit. Another one is de-risking. You know, not only compliance, but doing the right thing, working with the right suppliers certainly helps you down the line to minimize some risks. And the last one is all about investors, goodwill, reputation in the corporate space where we've seen that for us. And I wouldn't be surprised it would apply to your business and sector as well as investors, potential partners would see you as a more, more attractive business partner through your genuine sustainable uh, feathers. So, and I think those five dimensions could be described further, but usually we are able to quantify those business cases in fairly good sh in a good shape in those uh, dimensions. Excellent. Uh, I, yeah, I think we're 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 tracking with you, um, and we've had a number of conversations when we were kicking off our own ESG program um, not too long ago. And one of the discussions that we had, and I think we're still in the midst of it, is sort of how do you create the right ownership structure, given that there are multiple stakeholders? You know, as you mm -hmm. said, there's investors, there's employees, there's customers, there's really um, the the you know the, the the various kind of particular agendas within the overall sustainability program. So in your view, where do you think the sustainability project ownership should sit in a corporate? Well, we're a public and global corporation like yourself. So where should it be? For me, clearly under CEO, if not higher, but under CEO directly, minus one. So executive committee member. Uh, a chief, in our case, we have a chief strategy and sustainability officer, part of our executive committee member. It's it's the right, I think, uh, location for such a, a leader. And possibly a dotted line to a committee at board level, which provides oversight in that direction. Then it's it's true, it could, and it does, it, it gets anchored in some of the places in some companies. It can also work under a chief to be defined operations officer, a number two, maybe a chief manufacturing supply chain officer. That, that could also work, but I, usually I would tend to recommend boldly to have it as high as a CEO's office. Okay. Well, yeah. something for us to take on board and, and consider. For us, it, it is a committee and it's it's at the, you know, obviously at the C level, but it is really a joint project amongst the handful of senior leaders uh, in the company. Hmm. Um, I wonder if you could talk about sort of the, not just the business case, but really the outlook for the types of investments and trade-offs that you see when companies are undertaking a significant and serious sustainability agenda. This question is quite broad. <laughs> <laughs> We can as, as you know, sustainability is the word which is first, it's a, all-encompassing word from ESG, so E and S and G. Uh, e, each of them are a universe, environment, social governance. If I look at environment, usually this is where maybe more CapEx and OPEX would go into, you know, to make the company zero carbon and super circular. So yeah, let me start with investment on E, resource and all these sort of things. Social and governance, it's a lot of processes, uh, full-time equivalent, ways of doing business, not necessarily that CapEx intensive, but they could cost money as well. So before I go to the risk and the cost, I just want to say sustainability should not make a business operations more expensive. It may on one specific initiative because that sustainable packaging, that green ink or that low carbon server is slightly more expensive. Okay, fine. It may so happen, but they should never be the landing journey. It should not be accepted that anyone at leadership level in the company believes, oh, sustainability is throwing money at it and making it so greener. No way. So our job in those transformations is to find ways to make sustainability scalable by itself, making it 
productive, efficient. I took the example of renewable electricity. We signed up to be RE100, 100% renewable electricity. And as I told you, we started in 2017. And after four years, we are at 82% renewable electricity. And we've saved money on the way. The CapEx were borne by third parties. We didn't want to be ourselves producer of renewables. And we could save money. So, so, and I'm leading sustainable packaging. We have zero carbon projects. Some suppliers may say, hey, it's going to cost us some money to decarbonize. Say, no, no, think differently. Use less energy. Find, we're going to help you source electricity, which is going to be cheaper. And on the way, you will find saving. So now back to your question. Uh, so the key maybe investments in our case for decarbonization would be moving to entire electrical operation and decarbonize. So today we are 80% electricity uh, in our mix energy. So 20% is fossil, gas and fuel. So to be carbon neutral in 2030 without offsets, as we voted for ourselves, we have to completely replace those 20% of heaters, boilers, ovens. You know, we have ovens for uh, electric, electrical distribution equipment. So we are just, we've done the mapping. So there are going to be CapEx to replace those assets. So either it's part of the typical CapEx plan, which anyway would have happened. We may have a premium in some cases where the electrical oven would be in some markets more expensive than fossil fuel oven. That's fine. That's going to be factored in. So there may be some investment in that space. On real estate, given we have given ourselves nine years to be fully zero carbon without offsets, we are even changing locations. So the head office where I'm calling you from will not be the same in, in three years because we are moving out of this building for different reasons. But one of the reasons was to be fully zero carbon without offset. So we're going to be having a full electrical, renewable powered uh, building as an head office. So that's decisions, not CapEx, which we have time to plan ahead of us because we've set this 2030 target. The OPEX, as I said, should be lower. And if for some reason we had some, uh, I would say, logistics, uh, low-carbon logistics, electrical deliveries, for instance, which may turn more expensive in some markets, fine. We need to find a way to combat or counter that with smarter delivery modes, uh, fooling the container or the truck uh, more than it was, and, and, and therefore uh, offsetting, if you wish, the extra cost. So I don't want to be too rosy here in my depiction, but... Uh, when people say, Xavier, how much money do we have to become sustainable? The answer is you have no no additional money. Great. Find a solution. <laughs> right. Well, you know, um, I, I want to sort of link, link back your answer to the blog that uh, you published. And I think it was published in, in the end of 2018. So right before we even knew anything about the upcoming pandemic. Um, and you you talked about sort of the sustainability uh engagement being a business case for exactly what you just described, that it, it, it's really not just about shaping a, a carbon-free future, but it is about creating a more sustainable and transformative business strategy. I wonder now now that we've had you know two years of COVID and a lot of uh, changing dynamics globally, I wonder if you think that you've changed any of the strategies or any of the tactics related to how you go about executing the, uh, the, the, well, zero carbon for sure, but sustainable energy strategy in particular? So it was a, it's a good question. We, we, we had those conversations. We decided to not only uh, not change, but even accelerate because while the pandemic was on, uh, we all understood it was, uh, the climate was also uh, seeing some severe degradations, biodiversity, uh, we've worked a lot on this during the pandemic. So we tended to accelerate our sustainable agenda. We have added maybe uh, additional layers to our, if I look at the supply chain strategy, which which we have framed on the Strive, S-T-R-I-V-E, and each of the letters means something. So we've added resilience, the R, which is, of course, super critical and was even more critical during covid so uh, being ready with a supply chain, ready to not only to overcome uh, floods or ruptures of you know a container uh, vessel blocked in Suez Canal, but it's the power of two of having two suppliers for anything around the world, so having more regionalized supply chain. So COVID clearly accelerated our will to really uh, have almost a redundant or a, a duplicate 
supply chain in regions with different suppliers as much as relevant, as much as we could. And the other topic which gained momentum was digitization. We did all of it as any company remotely. And we digitize sustainability, we digitize safety audits, factory substance testing, energy audits, much more than ever. And we are now, we keep the pace of digitization furthermore. And now each of our sites would enjoy a digital twin of its performance with sustainable parameters embedded in it. So that's certainly two accelerations, but no way we would have uh, slowed down our sustainability uh, journey. Hmm. So I, I know that sort of we meant to talk about partnerships more broadly, but just in the context of the introduction of another dimension um, as part of your agenda related to redundancy and resiliency, how are you thinking about partnering? Uh, it, it sort of flies, I think, on the surface, flies in, in, in the face of efficiency arguments around having supplier uh really honing in on a just-in-time or a very efficient supply operation. How, how is that changing? And, and what are what are the partnerships looking like now post-pandemic? Or hopefully. Yeah. No, pan- partnerships are tighter than ever. We are a company which succeeds through partnerships. You know, if I look upstream, and I will talk downstream, uh, upstream, 75% of our cost of goods sold is in the hands of our suppliers. So, of course, their ability to come up with green, say, recycled polyamide, low-carbon aluminum steel, it's paramount. So we need to partner with them, jointly innovate. They know things we don't know. And therefore, partnership with them is is super critical, even for us also to help them gain more environment, health and safety, quality, productivity, uh, excellence in some cases. So it's a two-way partnership, which is paramount. Downstream, we work with distribution partners, panel builders, architects, electricians, installers, you know, number of players which by millions are partners of of Schneider Electric. And in the sustainability journey, we need to ensure they understand that when we come up with a low carbon circuit breaker, a more circular uh, variable speed drive, they need to first appreciate the value for them, for their customers, and be able to pass down to the market the attributes, install, and, and quantify the gains to the customer. So we have more than ever uh, a, a paramount critical need to embark the entire ecosystem. When we sell or when we connect with our customers through digital channels, all the sustainability attributes, we have a label called Green Premium for 80% of our product revenues, which are design, eco-design, art reach, ROHS, environment declaration, end-of-life instructions, a full transparency, we need to ensure that data is in the hands of our customers, of our customers' customers, in a manner which is seamless, even more in a COVID world or after a COVID world. So that's certainly, again, an acceleration of that partnership and digitization, um, say, embedding or welcoming sustainability in it as much as possible. And you, and you mentioned that one of the changes that you saw on the ground for your organization was the acceleration of digitization uh, did that also happen across the, the partner landscape? Are your suppliers, in your view, also accelerating their digital strategies? And are they doing enough and fast enough in order to suit your ambitions? Certainly, at least for the first part of your question, I can mention that, yes, indeed, we have seen from right, left, uh, center, everyone was turning digital. We have seen the numbers of fast multiplication more than in the last decade uh, of digital transactions between companies, companies to customers. So we've seen that in our sector as well. We have a, a, a platform called SSP SRM, Schneider Supplier Portal, Supplier Relationship Management. And that p- p- channel has never been as used as it, it has ever been during COVID because it was the single platform for most of our interactions to take place. We had so many co-innovations which were digital. So yes, indeed, they were more than ever. Are they doing enough? I'm sure they don't. Neither do we. Uh, and it's a continuous journey. So maybe my chief procurement officer colleague would be more able than I to tell you where we see enough project project progress and, and not enough. I think we all are in a journey. And I, I think five years down the line will be so much more digital than today. So we're still, uh, I think, infant in, in that game. Well, I think that would be an interesting follow-up. I, I think the procurement side would, would be a really good mirror to hold off to 
um, a lot of the strategy around sustainability, not just for yourselves, but for us as well. Sure. Um, I want to turn the conversation a little bit. So I, I know there's been a tremendous uh, appetite for investment in technology and digitization and, and sort of creating, as you said, digital twins and optimizing pretty much everything. And that's clearly a technologically driven um, impact. I wonder if you could talk about the element around human engagement in your own sustainability ambitions and how you're thinking about the impact all this digital transformation work is um, is creating on the ground in, in your culture, in the daily experience of the people on the ground. Just tell us how, how you're thinking and how you're doing and sort of engaging the people around this initiative. <laughs> So that's the topic which is super close to my heart because I believe all things being said and done, technology, processes, organization, it all boils down to people. And and frankly, that's the, the most important lever of that transformation. Uh, let me take a few examples. Uh, in this, So we are 140,000 uh, employees in the company and of which 80,000 are in the supply chain. So we decided to start, uh, it was not later than a month ago, we organized a, a full series of webinars during one week, engaging the 80,000 of our colleagues in the supply chain in a, in a webinar we called uh, Sustainable Supply Chain Days. It all starts with me. So I was not any speaker. I was not uh, chairing. We had youngsters from across the globe uh, deciding to, we had them organize those days, organize, you know, best practice sharing session. We had more than a hundred people testifying what they were doing at home, in office, in terms of sustainable practices, you know, fantastic level of energy, fantastic learnings. We have decided to get that running for the, for the years to come. Every quarter we'll have community days for everyone to open up. That's just one of things. We have a system through Yammer, our social network, where every day of the year, everybody can post any ID through an hashtag act for green. And all of them are, they know whatever the ID is, the ID they would suggest would be analyzed, scrutinized, and either copied with pride by others in the globe, or we're going to er erect some of them to best practices and decide to roll out. So a year ago, we had that single-use plastic ban will from our team for our people say, hey, we still see some plastics bag in plastic uh, plastic bottles in our canteens, you know, can't we do something? So yes, let's do something. So we, we signed for ourselves a zero carbon, sorry, a zero plastic strategy. And it's been driven by them, executed by them and across our 1000 sites. So we have 300 sites, which are industrial and 700 uh, commercial. Uh, all of them are now either complete or in the process of complete banning single-use plastic in their operation. So that's another one. Of course, number three, we have many training programs. Some of them are mandatory. So we have Schneider Sustainable Essentials, which are mandatory trainings for everyone to understand the, the climate change challenges, what our strategy is as a company, the six uh, levers, the six uh, yeah, the six pillars of our strategy. We have trainings more dedicated to R&D on eco-design, on sales, how to sell green premium, how to sell decarbonization. So somehow I'm trying to say that we are trying to leave no stone unturned. We are also the remuneration where we have erected 12 KPIs uh, of sustainability, which are forming the variable pay of 62,000 of us. 25% uh, of the global remuneration, variable remuneration of those people are is driven by the performance of how we decarbonize our customers. The zero carbon project is part of the 12. Uh, gender, diversity, ethics, you know, it's its very much central stage. Our board, our board of directors uh, are also being sensitized, trained, uh, their inputs taken. You know, it's something which we full-heartedly touch. And I think we are still at the beginning of a journey. We want everybody to be a sustainability ambassador. We have an, an ambassador network in a number of sites and regions, but we have voted for ourselves in 2022 to have across the globe, uh, vibrant, local, not driven by the top, communities of people wanting to share locally best practices, doing things in the site, outside of the site. So that's one part of your question. My answer was long. 
Actually, it's, it's a really broad question. So I suspect we could probably do a topic, uh, an hour, just on sort of the, the, the human element. Oh, yeah, um, it's big. And maybe the last thing on human, and you asked me on digitization, on human, uh, the purpose of the company, the mission statement is the number one reason why people join this company and stay in this company. We survey them. Huh? That, that's the number one reason. So as you can imagine, it's not only people as resources, ideas, brains, but they are also hearts and that they are human beings like you and I, and they, they long, they crave to work for company with a purpose. So it's so central and we believe we can tap much more into that collective intelligence than we still do today. On digitization, a quick answer, this one. Of course, we learned as many companies to work digitally. It was surprisingly efficient, but you know, we've been missing each other. So we are happy to be back in some form of physical connection with customers, suppliers, Teams, depending on where we uh, stay in the country, uh, in the world, depending on whether our countries allow us to travel and not be quarantined when we are back. But the direction is still a, a, a less travel, indeed, yes, less uh, face-to-face, but a, a good blend of both. Also, on workplaces, we are reshuffling our, the way we occupy space, which much more agile uh, workplaces, much more work from, say, home, uh, quote, quote, home, could be customer, could be uh, on road, uh, that's certainly something which COVID accelerated uh, further. So I want to I want to turn the next part of our conversation um, to measurement. Uh, obviously, all these programs are extremely broad, and you're relying, uh, I think, rightfully so, on both top down and bottom up engagement from the 140,000 people that you have in your company. We have a similar issue. We have, you know, albeit a much smaller footprint, we're, we're going to hit about 50,000. Um, and it's been a conversation that we've been having fairly continuously around how do we measure the right things uh, and how to think about the effect of that measurement on driving true impact. I wonder if you share your thoughts and, and how you measure and what you look at. And I noticed in your blog, you talked about science-based targets and metrics maybe take a, a, a broad stab at covering all of that. And I know it's broad. <laughs> yeah, no, again, uh, I like this question again. So of course we, 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 we measure, we have to measure like you want to measure. That's a good direction to, to follow. Uh, it's true. There are different types of key performance indicators. Some can be measuring the you know effect on the world around us. So the impact on our customers, on the world, and we can call that, or it can be incremental operational impact. How do we do about it? First, we look at, uh, again, outside in, what are the sustainable development goals, the 17 to which we contribute? And what about the 100 levels? You know, as you know, under the 17, we have almost 200 of KPIs, which we can or cannot contribute to. What are our customers gaining from us? How are suppliers impacted by us? What are the, you know, the competitors reporting against? What are the best companies reporting against? What is the materiality metrics? I know the maturity is to ask uh, from a st- list of stakeholders, and uh, from own internal surveys, what is perceived, what are perceived most material, most important sustainability items. So from those different external sources, competitors, benchmarks, stakeholders, survey, you know. So we, we somehow zero down onto a list of maybe 50, 60 themes where we do contribute to some extent and we would like to improve our performance further. But then we need to trim it down to some more digestible items. First, we need to group them by categories. We need to differentiate maybe Progress KPI, so energy efficiency, we have reduced by X percent compared to before. Okay, good to know. But maybe we can have a more impact-based related uh, KPI, which is how many tons of CO2 are we saving through the world? Yeah, for, for the world through our customers, a building being low carbon. How many uh, million tons of CO2 through making the world's grids more renewable, less leakage intense. So maybe in your sector, you will find exactly the same where you impact your customers and you operate uh, in a better manner yourselves. But once you've done that, we've selected some other, in our case, the top 12, which are deserving a quarterly reporting from our CEO and CFO to the external world. And we have 25 under those top 12, which are called Schneider Sustainability Essentials, the 25, which were more operationals. But those 12 plus 35, 25 are 37 top KPIs. But then on each of those areas, we would can, we can go much further. In a factory, we may have, say, 10 KPIs about waste, water, 
volatile organic compound, energy, CO2, and other things, and in in, a, in an office we have other. So this pyramid, if you wish, of the top to the medium to the more granular, is something needed. And and you know if you approach that uh, from both internal and outside lenses, I'm sure you would get to something uh, uh, measurable. Then of course measurement is a cost, so we should also be commensurate in our list of KPIs with what we can measure what is not too wrong, not too approximative, and what we can have third-party verified. You know, for everything we report externally, we make it a point to have a third-party, complete independent, to check everything. So, of course, they have to have a clear protocol of, of reporting, clear definitions, clear tracks, uh, clear evidences. And that also puts some more pressure on us to be ready with those evidence when we want to report externally. It's quite... Um Quite a contraption as far as the the metrics bingo. I mean, we're we're on our end thinking about how to do this. Obviously, we're we're not as we're not as impactful from a physical supply chain perspective. Our supply chain is people, but I, I think what you're describing sounds like a fairly heavy lift um, yes. for companies that are getting started. Um, do you how how do you think about it in the future? I mean, are you thinking over time, that this this system of measurement will become sort of will, will will create a more efficient version of itself, or are you thinking the number of metrics you you cover is going to expand? How, how many yeah. data points are enough to to really give you a sense of how you're doing? It's true that the the trend outside is to there's an increase, there's an exponential increase of the expectations from the stakeholders around the world. So you name it, NGOs, government, they keep on adding Mm -hmm. comparison, you know, taxonomy, duty of vigilance, decent work. So outside, the expectations on corporation is not slowing down. So somehow we are not even able to decide. We have to, especially when we want to play in that top league of companies which lead that game, somehow we know it's going to be a multiplying number of KPIs we have to report against. The question of efficiency is good. How can we track and measure in an efficient manner all of these? And how can we make them as part of a routine reporting as it was maybe a century ago with the basics of a PNL and a balance sheet? So that's, of course, been discussed for, for DKs, the big fours and IFRS and all these frameworks are all thinking around the same line of embedding or adding see standard KPIs on sustainability as part of the reporting, and some of them have been there for some time, but that's certainly the direction. So more KPIs, but more efficiently tracked. So I don't see any slowdown in that space by no hmm. means. Well, I guess we'll have to come back to this conversation in a couple of years because um, I, I think it's a real challenge. You know, people tend to tell you that you do what you measure and our experience, and, and obviously you're much progress. Uh, progressed from where we are, but our experience is that if we measure too many things, we lose track of kind of what it is that we're trying to achieve. But again, different footprint, different sort of size. Yeah, I think both are right. I think, of course, if we if we track too many things with the same level of importance, yes, we may lose track. But of course, there are things which are more material. You know, for us, we know what's most important for Schneider okay. uh, on strategy and progress and what really counts. But when you have customers in some countries, you have governments in some others, which add conflict minerals for some materials because you, you have customers SEC listed, then you have uh, uh, Anti-Slavery Act, all great initiatives, of course. So they have to prove the fact that we are having all the mechanisms in place. And then you had the Prop 65 in California for some chemicals. You, you, you keep on adding. And therefore, as a global company, those things pile up. So the, you have to do that. Yeah. Then the question is, of course, you may delegate to some specific teams. It may not hit the C-level reporting. It has to be, you know, selected before it's... Of course, all of that is true, but the number of KPI would increase that for sure, in my view. Yeah, I think, I fear you're right. Um, maybe just uh, turning to kind of probably the most controversial question is, how do you know that decarbonization is the right focus? Yeah, I like this one as well. Uh, I've, uh, in our strategy, which uh, we framed like seven, eight years ago, I've started really, we've started emphasizing three pillars. The first one was life and biodiversity. 
The second was resource circularity, and the third was CO2 and climate for the environmental pillar. And of course, we have all the human dimensions. So of course, climate is on top of the agenda everywhere, and we have to address climate. But seriously, uh, as some people say so nicely, you know, we if a zero carbon truck or bulldozer is, you know, with no emission, destroying Amazon forest, we won't be better off. You know, it's of course we need to maintain ecosystem, a vibrant life, water, rivers, species people, uh, no toxicity. So for me, that could even be number one because life is number one. Of course, climate will threaten life as a effect, you know, domino effect in some time. It's hitting us already today, but uh, life is number one. Resource, you know, we see resource crunches and, and, and scarcity, which may hit us badly in some sectors, just access to land, access to some food. People don't have enough on earth. Of course, climate is serious and climate is going to be... So back to your question, I'm with you. I think there is a rightly uh, focused, fo- you know, f- a strong focus on climate and CO2, no doubt. But somehow we shouldn't hide the other challenges. Uh, number one being life preservation, ecosystems, arable land, animal welfare, toxicity, which for me is as high, if not as uh, higher. So on this, we have, for ourselves, voted our biodiversity footprint. We were recognized as the first company worldwide to float a full end-to-end biodiversity footprint with our CEO, Jean-Pascal Tricoir, released in January of this year in a chief of state summit. And we are working to reduce our our biodiversity footprint through not only our own operations, which I alluded to quickly, uh, the food, the, the, the greenery of our site, species, uh, regeneration, trees, and all these sort of things, but more from uh, where is the copper coming from, where is the ca- cardboard and the pallets are coming from, are we sure it's all deforestation-free, are the mines uh, super favorable from a biodiversity perspective? All of that is certainly uh, coming uh, on the agenda of most companies in the future. And besides those environmental topics, I focused on, of course, diversity, inclusion, social justice, decent work, access to fair employment are for me as critical, of course, as climate. You know, we can't neglect human lives today and focus only on the climate uh, today and tomorrow. That, of course. So we had um, we had planned this uh, this podcast uh, a few weeks ago, and um, it, we got a bit delayed. And actually, I'm quite quite pleased that we got delayed because we're now coming out of COP26 um, and I'm sure you're following it closely and I'm sure you, your, your company is participating quite heavily. Um, I want to ask you kind of coming out of the, the, the you know, the Glasgow conference, what your outlook is for, for all, all of this sort of big mantle that the, the world has taken on itself. I think you know COP fifteen was disappointment. COP twenty one was a was a some form of uh, satisfaction. At the same time, each of the cops, many of us get a, a a mixed feeling. It's it's always good that conversation at that level happen on carbon and that some decisions get made and you know on coal on methane on maybe some companies taking bolder commitments or more commitments even if late. It's always good, okay? At the same time, you know, speed uh, and just extra sheer extrapolation, the reports which talk about the extrapolation of the national commitments, you know, show 2.7 degrees at the lowest for the end of the century, if not three, three and a half. So whatever the quality of those conferences and the conversations, still the numbers seem to tell us that we are far from having it right. <clears throat> so that's mostly what I take home is, hey, what do we do to accelerate, to decarbonize everything today? So this COP was uh, yet a useful milestone, but again, m- more should be done through the people, back to the people question you had earlier. For me, it, it, it will have a, I think, should we want to really accelerate next decade to be the carbon climate decade? It, it, it won't only come from... Uh, the top, and it has to come from the people, the individuals, the citizens, the consumers, the workers, to proactively and positively pivot their career and their decision purpose decision to really make it happen. So that's certainly reinforcing that conviction of mine. Uh, I'd be happy to hear yours. <laughs> Maybe this is not today's. Uh, <laughs> no, no, I'm. I'm happy. But, uh, I'd be happy to invite you as well to share on each of the topics we've been discussing today. 
Oh, yeah. Well, I think just on the outlook, um, I, I think I'm not as optimistic as you are, because, again, looking at, you know, these these conferences and they, they do happen periodically. Um, I think that the, the majority of, of the demand for action is legislative, legislative or regulatory. And I think that that's clearly needed. Um, you know, I would argue that we need more regulation in in places like in the technology landscape and maybe less in some of the places where regulatory pressure is being applied. Um, so, I mean, I, I had a look and I can send you a link. I had a look at the, the COP26 in pictures from The Guardian. It's an excellent article. It's basically mm-hmm. heads of state trying to negotiate a legisl- legislative agenda. And I actually think that the the work is on the ground, which which is what you you said earlier. The work is with engaging people, understanding sort of the local butterfly effects um, of small changes that could be made, you know, things like alleviating poverty and in, in, in introducing educational initiatives, because even anecdotally, at least from all the reading that I've done, and I know you and I share a similar reading list, um, you know, those changes around education, around uh, alleviating hunger, around alleviating violence in particular against women, those drive significant impacts on the ground and broader, and those impacts are only benefiting the climate agenda. So somewhere in the middle, the the big agenda around regulation and politics needs to meet the small agenda around personal action on the ground. And honestly, I'm not seeing a ton of that, but I could be just a pessimist at heart. No, I'm with you. I think I'm pessimistic and optimistic, as you've heard in my answer. It's not about pessimistic. It's more like what I see is, there are things which are good, but the pace is much too slow. So therefore, I'm urging us and I'm, I'm welcoming all those, say, top-down, in, bottom-up, sorry, bottom-up initiatives, uh, fragmented, you know, as the, the lighthouses of, of that desired future, because those uh, conferences don't necessarily drive that momentum which we would need, as you said, on regulatory matters, on accelerations of... Uh, of you know expectations from you know governments and companies and also I'm with you on the mixed bag of <laughs> such conferences. <laughs> yeah, well, you know we have a lot of work to do, and um, it's actually you know no no shortage of serious problems and no shortage of demand for serious people to solve them. And I think um, for us, you know, certainly I can speak for EPAM. It's not boring. To do all of that and continue to grow and to grow responsibly and sustainably has been a challenge and a half. Uh, and I can see the stuff that you guys are doing is is, is extremely impactful. Um, I hope that it goes faster, as you say, and I hope that we don't ever get tired of really pushing for <laughs> for change. No, I hope we won't. No, like you said, it's a thrilling journey, completely exciting. Many people want to join. Hey, hey, can we join your team? Can we do something sustainable? And the answer is, yeah, wherever you are in the company, in finance, in procurement, in HR, you are very much able and you already do, possibly. You can be that change in your function even better than a dedicated function. So it's a very welcoming uh, approach, which I think we need to have because, you know, everyone has a, has a play and everyone is excited Every, individually to be and thrilled to be inventing new ways of, of doing uh, doing business more more sustainably. That's for sure. Maybe this is a good place for us to end. I just want to thank you, uh, Xavier. I think this has been a really educational conversation for me, and I think we probably just only scratched the very surface of all of the incredible things that you're doing, uh, that Schneider's doing, and that you're doing with Schneider. So thank you very much. Thank you for the conversation. EPAM Continuum integrates business, experience, and technology consulting focused on accelerating breakthrough ideas into meaningful impact. Thanks to Xavier Uo and Elena Schechter for their great conversation. Cheers to Kip Palalas, our sound engineer extraordinaire, for getting this podcast recorded. Applause to Ken Gordon, our producer, for all his masterminding behind the scenes. I'm your host, Allison Coton, and I'm off to install a solar panel.